This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Hi, everybody. It's John Hall. I am here at Two Roads Brewing in Connecticut, but I am talking to a Massachusetts brewer, and I'll explain uh, a little bit more uh, as to why we're here in just a little bit. Chris Loring is the owner, brewer, founder of Notch, which is a maker of fine, fine lagers, Pilsner beers, uh, all sorts of things that are not ales, uh, at his brewery in Salem, Massachusetts. And Chris, First of all, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice for having me. Uh, I'm, I, I have said uh, publicly and in print that I am an unabashed fan of the beers that you're making. I think we need more lagers uh, in this world, and the ones that you're making uh, are a cut above the rest that are out there. And that's, that's a compliment to sort of get you on the right foot. Um, what is the current state of lagers in the American beer scene right now? I think we're at a point where we're seeing a lot of attention and talk about lager, but I'm not really sure how far that's penetrated uh, either the craft uh, expert, consumer, enthusiast. Um, but I think we're in a different spot we were maybe uh, five years ago when it was all talk about IPA, West Coast IPA, IBUs, et cetera. And I think as we've seen the evolution of IPA come to less bitter, more floral, more balanced, we're starting to see people think, oh, well, I like these balanced beers. Maybe there's something with lager. So I, th- I think we're at that point where um, there's a lot of exploration and talk about it, but we're not quite at the level, I think, where you're going to see lager explode. But I think brewers would love to see it explode. I'm sure. not sure the consumer's there yet. So are you actually saying that New England IPAs could fuel a lager revolution? I think anything that has balance uh, and nuance benefits lager because that's what lager is all about. So if we're seeing a return to beers that you want to have two or three of and not be fatigued, uh, if you want to see beers that have nuance and not just brute force, um, you're going to talk about lager in the same breath that you talk about a New England IPA. That's a really interesting way of looking at it because I mean, visually, uh, the two couldn't be further apart. I mean, if, if, lagers, are, if, if, yeah. if lagers are done right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more there. Let's just... Lagers have been a part of the American beer scene from the beginning. Uh, we've seen, obviously, you know, Budweiser is uh, now the fourth best-selling beer, and the three beers that come before that with uh, Bud Light, Coors Light, and Miller Light all fall into the, the, to the lager pilsner category. Um, some of the earliest adopters in the craft beer movement, uh, including Sam Adams back in 84, that's sort of a Vienna lager. Uh, we see uh, Dos Equis as a popular Vienna lager that people don't necessarily think of as a Vienna lager. Um, they're around, and we've obviously had the imports that have come in forever. Um, but I, I, I don't know if people often stop to think about what a lager is, aside from the fact that it's not an ale you know that that's obviously the first thing that 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 comes up but what else separates the lager category well i I think with lager you have to think in terms of styles and i think a lot of people have been taught that lager means pale lager american pale lager so you talk about bud miller cores uh you know miller light 
Pilsner, Pale Lager, and they miss the whole other aspect that it's um, not only traditional but wide in variety. And even among the Pale Lagers or Pilsner of the world, there's great depth. I mean, at Notch in Salem, we've made about seven or eight different styles of Pale Lager, and among those, you look at just the Czech category of Pilsner, I mean, that's pretty wide. It's almost a category from dry to sweet to malty to dry. So yeah, I, I think with uh, with lager, it becomes the educational component that's really important because there's just not that amount of it. You know, um, uh, educational being presented, I think, from the part of the brewer in, in a depth way of a consumer starting to understand that. Um, I think there's also that with this, I talked about with styles and that it's more than just the Vienna lager. It's more than just, you know, the Sam Vienna or Dos Equis. Um, that you can be anywhere from low ABV, which are a lot of the traditional Czech lagers um, are hallmarks of low ABV pale lager, up to strong beers of Baltic Porter, um, to Doppelbach, etc., and everything in between. And it can be hoppy, etc., dry. Um, and so I think all that, that knowledge, once the consumer sees that lager is this really big world of styles and flavors and aromatics, you can't simply say, I don't know, understand lager, I don't like lager. I'm an ale guy, I'm mm-hmm. an IPA guy. Because then you're narrowing your choices, and you know, we've had we have somewhat of a monolithic or um, uh, narrow view of, of what we like in the world right now because it's all driven by IPA. And if you can get outside of that box it, and understand like balance and nuance is all good, you might want to look at lager a little more because a little more balance and nuance from a style perspective. And that, I think that's where people get excited. We see that at Notch, and consumers come in and look at our board and they, what's your IPA, and we don't have an IPA, and there's some handholding getting them through what they might like. And we like that because it forces the consumer out of their um, comfort zone and it forces them to try something different. And that's, if you look back in the history of craft beer, that's what we were here for, to offer options that you know weren't available or to offer options that may challenge your notions of what beer is about or to offer options that you didn't know existed that you may become, it may become your favorite. Yeah. So that's one of the things we love at Notch is that we're able to have that, that, that conversation with the customer that... We, if, if there's no IPA on draft, we're going to find you something that you enjoy. Have you had anybody walk out because you don't have an IPA? Oh, yeah. Have you? Really? Oh, absolutely. Folks walk through the door, what's your double IPA, what's your IPA? And they just can't see past that. And we put them to the brewery across the street. And they're happy over there. <laughs> so it, 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 it's interesting. And there is this monoculture of IPA lovers who are self-proclaimed experts who really know nothing about beer other than they like hops. And they like the flavor and aromatics hops. Nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, the hops are wonderful. IPAs are wonderful. But the monoculture aspect of it is is a little bit disconcerting in that we've become no different than a bud drinker who won't vary from uh, American Pale Lager. That's a really interesting way uh, of looking at it because we have been a beer culture of extremes, uh, one end or the other. It's, it's only we're only going to drink one style um, and... So you're, you're a brewer who you've been doing this for quite a while. You've worked at other places. Uh, you now have your own place, as it were. You've made IPAs. You've made uh, Baltic porters. You've done all sorts of stouts and saisons and everything else along the way. When you were getting Notch off the ground and, and, and thinking about it, what drove you towards lagers and and just lagers because it could be very easy for you to say yes we are a lager brewery but yeah we also have this this double IPA on for that you know point 
that half of, of 1% that shows up uh, that asks for the IPA and then that walks out the door, you could say, oh, we got something under the table for them. You you could have done that. I could have. I had an epiphany. So I, I've been a brewer since, professional brewer since 1993. Um, and I left uh, Brewery Tremont uh, in Boston in, in 2005 and took my, right after that, I took my first trip to the Czech Republic. Yeah. And I sat in their pubs and drank half liter after half liter after half liter of some of the very best beer I've ever had. What we call pills and what the Czechs would call pale lager. Yeah. Um, and not only culturally, or did I, I love the atmosphere there, um, but the beers are some of the very best I've ever had. And being someone that, for my first part of my career, brewed British ales exclusively of all strengths, this is a real epiphany to me that a session beer, they don't call it session beer, but it, it is, it serves the same purpose. You know, I thought a session beer was a British bitter or mild, and then I went and had a Pilsner of 4%, and I was blown away. And I left that experience never forgetting it. And when I was starting Notch, I went back to the Czech Republic again um, because I wanted to emulate that in the United States because nobody was doing that. Um, and one of the first beers I put out was something called Session Pills, which is a 4%. ABV uh, Pilsner, which in the Czech Republic they would refer to as a Templado, Tsika, or Tenor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the most widely consumed beer. And I, I introduced that, and I got, I got killed by the beer experts. That there was nothing... <laughs> well, hold on. Who are the beer experts that were killing you? Or are you just talking about fans online? We had an, we had an NPR story hit about Session Beer, and Session Pills... Our, our flagship at the time still we have, an, we have a, another beer that overtook that but Session Pills flagship at the time was the lead um, photo uh, in the story online and they posted that on their Facebook page and people that work for breweries breweries fan, I mean everybody Pilsen's and the, the, the common theme was Pilsen's already a Session beer that's not the way to look at it in the, in the Czech Republic 4% is Session 5% is Standard huh. 1% but it's a big percent. Um, and so if you go to, to a standard beer hall uh, beer bar in the Czech Republic and you order a pale lager, you're getting a 4% 10 Plato beer because that's the beer you can have five of and walk a straight line home. Next step up is a 5% beer and 5% is standard alcohol. Um, so that um, classification of styles and ABV and that classification of lager and the beauty and depth of flavor you can get in a 4% beer blew me away. So Notch focuses on session beer. And I wanted to make sure that when we built Salem that we did it from process and from service. And so process-wise, we have a decoction brew house. So we can emulate what happens in the Czech Republic. We've opened fermentation. We have uh, horizontal lagering tanks. Um, so from a process standpoint, I know that we're doing as true um, uh, as possible to the styles that we want to make, whether it be German or Czech. And then in service, we uh, emulated what I saw at some of the best um, Czech beer halls in terms of uh, they have a certain faucet that has a horizontal ball valve with an elongated um, faucet that you pour beer a much different way. It creates a dense, creamy head. Yeah. And that service is as important to that beer um, as the production or the process. And so I wanted to make sure we tied everything together. And so, you know, here we are in Salem two years later producing a wild, wild variety of lagers, German, Czech, Polish, American, and the Czech ones only come off that front t- the front tower that is the, the one we imported from Pilsen. Um, and that all came from my epiphany that I had in 2005 when I first traveled there. And that's what set me down this, this path of lager. 
and I have I've never looked back. I still will brew a British beer, um, but man, if you're gonna give me my deathbed beer, it's gonna be a pale lager, and it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be ten to twelve Play-Doh, and it's gonna be a traditional hop because to me that's the subtle and the nuance are so layered and the depth is so great, but it doesn't hit you over the head. So that's the thing, right? And and when I talk to brewers, you always hear about the subtle and nuance of of lagers and and i agree as somebody who drinks a lot of lagers as somebody who drinks a lot of czech pills um be it yours be it even pilsner or kel uh there's a bar in my uh in my town that uh, uh that gets the fresh stuff uh, sent over and it's it's still a, a gorgeous beer despite corporate ownership and all of that like it's still a well-made beer and there are levels uh to it but when you hear about when you talk to beer geeks or, or the people who have walked out of your bar because you don't have an IPA, it's, oh, but it's not a bacon coconut porter where they think about flavors or adjunct flavors or addition flavors as layers. Um, but you're just talking about the four main ingredients uh, yeah. where water actually plays a big role Huge uh, in this as well. So. What are some of the nuances? If somebody is only drinking double IPAs, what are some of the nuances that jump out to you in a pale lager that we should be looking for? Uh, the first part of that, that your comment is, is, I think, as important in that finding, um, f- drawing flavors from process and four main ingredients rather than layering it with adjuncts. And I, I'm, I don't mean adjuncts like you know, rice or corn. I'm talking yeah. adjuncts like chocolate and whatever else you can for you know find in the forest and throwing that in, and saying that's innovative and cool. <laughs> and not that that isn't, and not that that's right or wrong, but that is not my style of brewing. My style of brewing is taking the four basic ingredients and extracting as much flavor uh, as possible, but also different types of flavors and aromatics. Like you want pepper, don't have peppercorn. Take a look at a hop and find out what hop has a great deal of pepper in it. Um, so with lager. Um, if you're an IPA fan and you're starting to look at lager and trying to understand those nuances of flavor and subtlety, it's hard because you're going to walk into a bar and there might be one or two lagers. And if it's an American producer, it's going to be an overhopped Pilsner or it's going to be an overhopped lager. And what you're going to find is something that has some similarity to an IPA, but you're not really understanding the, sim- the, 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 the subtleties of it. Uh, not on any given day, we have you know five to six lagers. You know, two or three might be pale lager. And there's nothing better than having three pale lagers right next to each other. It's like a Dortmunder. Or Czech pills, and then you know a German Zwickel beer, all wildly different because of water composition. Mm-hmm. Um, one's hard, one's soft. One has you know some temporary hardness. Uh, one's highly hopped. One's low hopped. One is um, medium hopped. And so to pick out the differences in those, if you just have one beer, in one example of that style, it's hard, or, or the, the nuances of that. But if you among those three, you'll have this general general knowledge of wow, these beers are different. And I don't like Dortmunder because it's too damn dry. It's like I feel like I'm sucking on you know drywall. Or uh, I have this um, uh, wonderful Czech lager that the IBUs read 45, but I don't get any IBU out of that at all or bitterness because the water's so soft. But the hop is aromatic and peppery and spicy and great. Or as Wickle beer, or as Wickle beer, which is very uh, malt forward but not sweet. Right? And the difference between those three beers are dramatic. But it's very rare you get a chance to walk in and see three pale lagers. You can walk into an, any bar and find five double IPAs and five pale ales right. and be able to do that same exercise and learn a lot about hop varieties and sweetness and dryness, but you can't do that with lagers. It's very difficult. Um, 
so I don't know the best way for someone other to do it other than to go to their local package store. Sorry, I'm from Boston. It's a package sure. store. Yeah. <laughs> to go to their local liquor store and buy a number of them and just start trying them and understanding them. And that's, that, that's to me, the, the, the funnest part. When you don't know something. All right, so if, you, if you're a novice to brewing and you get, get in the brewing world, you can go to Beer Advocate or Rate Beer and say, all right, the highest rated beer in the world is X. I'm going to go drink that. And I understand it now. I'm an expert because I haven't take I didn't have to travel the path to get to that beer. Sure, right? I'm just going to go get the best. With lager, it's harder to do that. So it's more fun. You go to go to the liquor store and buy five lagers. They may be German, they may be Czech, they may be uh, from the United States, and you get to sit down with your friends and try them and discuss them. And there's no ratings telling you which one's the best because all lagers are they're rated poorly. Right. <laughs> and that, and that's I, I want to get into ratings in in, in just a minute. Um, but I do want to jump back though. So when you're talking about having three different pale lagers with three different water chemistries, how are you controlling that in the brewery? So Salem, we're, we're blessed with very soft water, some some amount of uh, chloride, um, but at lower levels, great for session beer because we want an elevated chloride level. Is that a reason you picked Salem? Uh, I picked Salem because my family's been there for four generations. So okay. We just happen to have great water. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, but most of the. Uh, Eastern Massachusetts has soft water, unless you're in some kind of well situation, but the surface water is very, very soft. Uh, so uh, we adjust that in the brew house through um, water chemistry and additions of uh, minerals, uh, either to the mash mixer or to our mash water or to the brew kettle, depending on what we want to do. So we have a target uh, water um, uh, profile that we want to mimic, and then we'll add um, minerals based upon uh, what we're trying to achieve. Uh, and each beer is different based upon that 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 desire. Uh, a lot of it just mimics what is um, that region of Europe or the United States that we want we want to mimic, and has a big big impact on on the, on the flavor. We have a Dortmunder on right now, and I did a collaboration beer with Ben Howe of Enlightenment Ales. Both very hard water, um, one very hoppy, one not the Dortmunder not hoppy, and the collaboration beer is very hoppy, and they're wildly different beers. Hmm. Um, but the water makeup kind of uh, makes them you know, the same family. Right? Water is obviously the most necessary ingredient. It, it's often, I, I've said this before, uh, the most overlooked. Um, how much time do you spend thinking about water? <laughs> I don't want to sound boring, but probably uh, more than I should in, in that <laughs> you're, always, you're always trying to improve. And any brewer who's honest is always trying to improve every single beer they have. I mean, for me, nothing's perfect. Yeah. And that's what drives us at Notch to be constantly learning. And a big part of that is your water and how that influences um, the end result. And a lot of the beers we make are delicate. A lot of beers we make um, don't have a lot of malt sugar at the beginning of fermentation. And they don't finish particularly high in gravity. So there's nothing to hide. So that water is really going to come through in a way that uh, is impactful. So we think a lot about you know, those additions and their impact on everything from sulfur production to um, colloidal stability, to palate fullness, to palate dryness, um, hopping rate, and how much calcium we should have with hops. So, you know, it, it can get boring, you know, I think, for the layman. Yeah. But for the brewer, it's, it's really important. But it's also, it can get boring for the layman, but the, the proof is actually in the taste. And, and, and that's something where we can talk about the flavors that malt can impart depending on how it's killed. We can talk about various yeast strains and uh, esters that they can, that they can produce. And same thing with hops where, you know, flavors that they, that they impart. What are some of the, if you're just talking about some of your pale lagers, how do you direct people? What are some of the flavor 
compounds that you use to direct people towards specifically picking water out of the beers you make? Because it's easy to pick out hops, but it's not always easy. So are, are there... I mean, a, a good one is to start with, and this is more of something we do from a QC standpoint or um, uh, from a flavor um, analysis uh, with the staff, is that think about bitterness, astringency, and dryness and try to pick out which is which. Yeah. Because right? some people have a hard time with bitterness versus astringency, and some people have a different time, difficult time between astringency and dryness. And all that affects your tongue in a slightly different way. Uh, and they're all, they're all different. A uh, couple of them are not really desired. You know, being overly bitter is like an aspirin. Being overly astringent is like your tongue drying out because you had a very tannic wine. Um, drying out, typically for me, is a positive. I love dry beers. I don't like I don't like sweetness. I like malt. Right. I like malt to be in the middle of the of the of the beer. But when it finishes, ultimately, I want that beer not to hang in my tongue forever. I want it to dry out. And dry actually used to be a big selling point. I mean, Rheingold, right, was the was the dry beer. Um, Not only that, you look back. I mean, I'm, I'm Boston's my world, so but I have to, so I have to reference this. But I remember going to Boston, the, the best beer bar, in, what I think is the best beer bar in Boston, in 2010, 2011. Everything was bitter and dry. What's the What's the best? Deep Deep Ellum. Sure, um, absolutely. Uh, they They had a menu that was American and bitter, mm-hmm. or European and dry. Yeah. And that was a big trend. Yeah. This is before the hazy IPA, New England IPA trend, which is one I do not, I, I'm fully on board with. I, there's a lot of things I love about that. Um, but they tend to be a little bit sweeter, uh, less bitter, uh, less dry. Um, but that was a big trend, and I love that. And that went away. And that was only eight years ago. So that, that's how fast things are moving in craft beer. And that yeah. trends come and go within a year or two. And it, you know, I, so, you know, back to your point, you know, the water chemistry is one that, um, we can use to educate um, the consumer about why it's important. And, and when you have a beer like a Dortmunder, you can really do that. It's hard when you have a beer that's a double IPA and say, well, we put a lot of uh, calcium chloride in this beer for palate fullness because there's so many things going on. They, it's so hard for them to discern that. Is it present? Sure, it's present, but it's hard because there's so many flavors and aromatics going on. One thing, uh, just jumping around uh, again a little bit, we were talking about adjuncts before, and, and I'll rem- I remember a few years back, um, you were sort of leading this charge online where people were, were saying adjuncts are, 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 are a dirty word and uh, uh, rice and corn have no place in beer, uh, and you came out with a beer uh, you called Mule. The Mule. The Mule. Yeah. Right? The Mule was the name of... Uh, still is. We still come out once a year. So- uh, do you want me to jump in on that? Yeah, please. All right, so the mule we came out with, uh, this is previous to the Brewers Association um, change in definition of what a craft brewer is in the United States. So back during craft versus crafty when breweries like Yangling, Shell, yeah. Straub, all of them. So you know, look at Shell for a second, for example. Sure. Is there a more traditional brewery in the United States than someone who's been here since the 1800s doing things the same way? Right. Year in and year out. And they use... Corn, which we call an adjunct because it's not barley, um, because when their German ancestors came and started brewing beers here, our barley was horrible. It was six row full of astringent tannins that was not making good beer. And so there's an abundance of corn. So they figured out if we use corn at a certain percentage with this really poor malt, we can smooth that beer out and make a really nice beer. Um, corn is more expensive. So this myth that it was less expensive was, again, perpetrated by the Brewers Association as a differentiating, differentiating factor to the beers that they wanted to promote. 
Um, and I just took issue with that, that we were, we were creating this mythology around um, uh, adjuncts that it really wasn't required, wasn't needed. And so I brewed a beer with 25% uh, um, corn, and each year that how I've used that corn has been different. It's been flaked, it's been malted, it's been grits, just to fool with it and have fun. Um, but I also initially that beer was really, really flavorful. So we used great, uh, great ingredients along the way, and we dry hopped it, and it's a, it's a light lager, but wonderfully uh, aromatic and flavorful. And people would drink that beer. It's like, this, there can't be corn in this. But the only reason I know that existed is one of my, my first apprenticeship was at a brew pub in Maine, and their, this is 1993, sure. and their, their largest selling beer was a light beer that they used flake maize in. The beer wasn't great. The recipe wasn't great. It was designed to be bland. Right. Like, but back in the day, that's the way that you got people. That's how you got people hooked in. Sure. But I'll never forget the impact the flake maize had in that beer, and I really loved it. And I always thought about, well, this flake maize could be great if the recipe was, was changed and we did something you know, flavorful around the grain. So the, corn's not, not, the, not the enemy. It's the recipe that's the enemy. There's a reason Bud Miller cores taste the way they do. Uh, it's recipe by design, and the adjuncts just along for the ride through tradition. And you know, so here we are in 2018, and the Brewers Association changed their mind because they came to their senses. Right. If Shell's not, if Shell's not traditional in the way that the Brewers Association defines it, then nobody is. Right. And that's and that was an issue that was resolved a couple of years ago. And Chase Marty, who's uh, I guess sixth generation there, wrote this very impassioned letter that people, if you haven't read that before, you can go find that online, where he lays out the the, the very reasons as to why uh, they are traditional and uh, and the rules were changed. And uh, it's one of the things that uh, is interesting about craft these days or independent these days is that it's an ever evolving. Um, uh, uh, definition, as it were, and 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 that's sort of a good segue because one of the things that I think for a while people were saying, oh, you know, you're 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 not craft or you're not uh, uh, a a real brewery unless you have your own, and we're here at Two Roads because they make beer for you. Um, you have your own recipes and they have this very nice facility here in Connecticut where uh, they do contracting work uh, based on existing recipes from breweries and they scale it up and they package it and uh, you get to have your beer uh, in package stores uh, as, as they were. Um, but for a, a, a while, um, you didn't have your own home. You were you were bouncing around to uh, a couple of contract places. Um, and then uh, was it three years ago now, you opened up in Salem right. with, with, with your spot. Right. What necessitated that? Because it seems like you had a pretty good thing going and people liked your beer and they liked you and they could they could get your beer on, on, on shelves. Um, why deal with the headache of real estate and, and your own stainless and all of the other problems that come with actually having uh, a facility when things were, at least from the outside, seemingly going pretty okay? The, well, we get back to the very beginning why I went contract route. Uh, there are two factors in that. One is that I'd already been a brewer and I've been a brewer at a production facility for a long time. So there wasn't this inherent need or desire as a new brand. I, I got to have you know, my own facility. There's, and I understand that desire to brew your own beer in your own facility is really a wonderful, wonderful thing. And anyone who does it will tell you that. But that wasn't my primary goal. My primary goal was that I had an idea for a category of beer, which is basically session beer that I didn't know would last a day. And I wasn't going to build a brick and mortar facility around that. I'm also not independently wealthy as a brewer of my whole life. You know, Weird. my bank account wasn't out of you know someone who'd been in finance. That and doesn't sound accurate. <laughs> Breweries, come on. Um, 
and, you know, I'm old enough where you know I don't have a rich dad who's going to finance it. Yeah. And you know, rich dads are a wonderful source. I'd, I'd use that if I had it. Yeah. Uh, so I had to be pragmatic about it, and I took a few years off um, before I started Notch. Um, and worked in engineering and the engineering world in the product development process was very rigid and you prove things out not by building a facility you prove them out by building them and testing them and so I had that same mindset so I used contract facilities to basically brew my beer and to grow it to test it out and with constant iteration of beers that I wanted to make and said all right after a number of years uh, I hit a nerve in certain styles that I was brewing Uh, my session pills my check pills and one of them two roads was just about to open and I had a choice, am I gonna build my own facility or am I gonna use someone else to scale? Mm-hmm. And I put my beers in the shelf, a 12 pack of Notch Pills is you know, 15, 16 bucks. At my scale, there's no way I could do that. I mean, at the time I was brewing 5,000 barrels a year when I started at, at, at Two Roads. I couldn't, you couldn't float an enterprise on a $15 12 pack at 5,000 right. barrels. The math doesn't work, the margins don't work. So two roads when they started brought me in, and I've been growing here since then. And now we're we're doing we were doing double the volume we did when we started. But somewhere along that line, I knew that I saw what was happening with tap rooms. Right, I could see what was going to happen with tap rooms, and I also thought a facility was going to really going to be able for us to um, hone in on everything we I've ever wanted to do with Nosh, and that required my own place. Two roads is wonderful. I wouldn't be here without them, but it is for things you've already proven out and you want to scale. Um, you don't really want to prove it out in a 100 barrel system. Right? You, want to, you want to make sure that it gets done somewhere else. So uh, we have a 10 barrel system at Notch that we're able to do that and get immediate feedback from our tap room. We do some keg, sell kegs in the world and soon some um, limited canning. Um, and that informs everything we do for our larger scale production. And I also wanted to make sure that we had an experience for our consumer because when you sell beer, your first question is, so what do you do? That's an easy one for us to answer. And I could, <laughs> I, I've talked at length about what we do. The second question is where you're from, because they want to visit. Yeah. The consumer, the consumer wants that experience of ex- to, to go to the place of production uh, and understand what you're all about. Um, so that's why we built the brewery in Salem uh, and found, it, after a long search, it was almost four years, we found the exact spot that we thought that would um, present itself as what, you know, session beer, uh, communal drinking, uh, half liters and liters of beer, beer garden, beer hall. So that experience is really important as much as our ability to do production in R&D. So I want to point out that in our in Craft Beer and Brewing's uh, Best of 2017, uh, I named your brewery as uh, my personal best. Uh, it is, as I've said before, uh, as close to small brewery perfection as I've found. And that's from visiting uh, 12, 1,300 plus breweries uh, at, at, at this point in my life. I had... Uh, some of the most enjoyable drinking sessions of my life, um, sitting drinking liters and half liters of flavorful lagers uh, in a really just well thought out setting. And 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 I was thinking about this on on the drive up today as to um, really what makes your place in my mind stand out. And I and I I think we sort of hit on this earlier where um, you know, you don't have room to hide when it comes to loggers. Uh, it, it's, it's, they're very clean, um, uh, they're, they're very open, and, but there's also a lot of nuance. And your place with the exposed brick, with the outdoor uh, beer garden, there's not a lot of stuff on the walls, but what there is is sort of interesting. Uh, the place feels very sparse, but also filled at the same time. There's, 
it's almost the physical representation of a lager um, and an exciting lager is is the feeling that I get in your tap room. The the the, the space mimics what's in the glass and. I think that if we if we peel that back a little bit, there are chaotic tap rooms that exist, um, and places serve chaotic beer. And maybe it's it's that's intentional. Some something tells me kind of not uh, that tap rooms have been an afterthought for for folks. But it feels like your place is very deliberate, but without trying. And that's a it's a really long winded uh, compliment, uh, as it, as it were, towards you. But but I, but I but I mean it, and I'm wondering like. How much does how how much thought did you put into the physical place as to you wanted it to be a showcase for the beers that were in the glass? It, it meant everything to me that when someone walked into the, the tap, thank, first of all, thank you. Sure. <laughs> um, I'm going to put that in a commercial if we have the ability to do so. Uh, it, it was important to me in that um, you know in my time spent drinking some of my favorite beers that they, they happened to be in places that were really special. And those are connected, um, and I want to make sure that connection was was true with us, and that we found a place that was special and people enjoyed coming to once or every day, um, and it, it stuck with them. So I think some of the design aesthetic is, is definitely a re- representation of myself, and you know, liking clean lines and not cluttered, and um, but still feeling warm. Like I walk into our tap room at night, and it's a warm feeling, even though it's a it basically was a brick warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we still were able to, to marry those things. Um, you know, the beer garden uh, on, the, on the South River that feeds the Salem Harbor, I wanted to make, it was imperatively we had outside drinking. Um, and this is a small thing, but in Massachusetts, uh, in the Boston area especially, there's not a lot legacy, like there's in Chicago and New York, of beer gardens or drinking outside. Yeah. We, we, you know, we're the most um, uh, oppressed liberal city in, in the nation in that, <laughs> We did all our drinking behind bars yeah. in dark rooms, and we couldn't drink outside unless we had a sandwich that was on a baguette. So we, we, we ha- I wanted to make sure there was an outside experience where you can drink and no one's rushing you through the experience because you have to have food. So you know, the, the beer garden as beer only is really important to me because it's unrushed, it's unhurried, and that's a reflection of great lager and great session beer, that unhurriedness aspect of it. Um, yeah, so the design aesthetic was important, but the experience is just, is just as important to us. And because um, when someone leaves, ninety five percent of our beer, ninety percent of our volume is, is sold out in the world, out in the trade through distribution. Five percent is from our from our brewery in Salem. So when someone goes there, I want to make sure that when they leave, they remember us and they remember the experience because that, that it's all tied together. Um, it's not inexpensive inexpensive to do, but um, in the end, it's worth it. One of the things that that we're starting to see more and more is in, in the past, and, and I'll use Boston as an example. Uh, beer was everywhere, and you'd go into your local tavern, you'd go into your local restaurant, you could have a beer. Uh, you would go. Um, it, there wasn't much. There there wasn't a lot that was special about it, and it certainly wasn't about the beer. And now we're starting to see more breweries come up uh, with thought going into their tap room with. Um, uh, you know, tap rooms even essentially just being the new bars. Even if you can't get mixed drinks or wine or anything else, depending on your state, um, people are choosing to go to tap rooms over bars as well. And that's sort of leading into a new fight between tavern associations, leading to uh, you know people paying closer scrutiny or paying closer attention and and putting cl- uh, more scrutiny on uh, tap rooms um, as well. 
what, what do you see the role as as a tap room versus a restaurant versus a you know a, a general bar as it were these days like can all three exist or are we headed into new territory I think all three can exist and um, yeah you know for us it's a, it's a little bit different in that the tap room does act as you know, for lack of a better phrase, a marketing vehicle for our beers we sell out in the world for the reasons I just discussed. Yeah. We need people to go buy our beer in distro or we don't have a company. Um, but the experience itself is different than what we've seen. And what we, it, tap rooms are community in a way that it's hard for a neighborhood bar to be um, and it's hard for a restaurant to be. Restaurants need to turn tables, um, serve food quickly, um, and you know, be profitable. And it's hard to do that with, with um, the gross margins of, of a restaurant. Um, so you know, lingering is not really encouraged. Neighborhood uh, bars tend to be something that is not community focused unless you're above a certain age, and even then, it's a bit clicky. Um, beer bars, I think, have have, have have done a good job becoming more of a community base because you're they appeal to a certain demographic that there's a shared experience about loving beer, and and so the beer bars in the Boston area, I think, have done that. But then you get to a tap room, and you this whole different level in that. There's just a Brewers Association. I, I criticize Brewers Association as much as I, as I uh, applaud them. So I'm applauding them here. Um, they came out with an article that talked about how the drinking occasions, if you will, for lack of a better term, are new and that they're not um, taking away from bars and restaurants and that there are situations where people are going out and having a beer because there was no other place for them to go. Yeah. So if you come to Notch, we do have a family-centric um, environment. Um, that you know you have a lot of kids we try to it's not Chuck E. Cheese it's not a playpen but we do have a lot of families that show up because they can sit there and linger and there's no pressure to turn the table um, it's not a beer bar so they're not getting sneered at it's roomy that's one of the reasons why it is so roomy and notch is that you know they can hang out and they can sit next to a 20 year old couple they don't have kids um, uh, it's effective know. birth control yeah <laughs> yes to a certain degree, um, but we also have a, we have a, on Friday afternoon. There's some of my favorite customers coming Friday afternoon at, at one o'clock. You know, a couple of retired guys that come in, four of them. They sit there every Friday afternoon. They have a leader, right? They may not feel comfortable at their neighborhood pub because it's you know it, it's all a bunch, during the day. Sure, it's a little bit different. It's sunny and bright and notch during the day, and it, they may be the oldest people in by 20 years in some other locations. They come to notch, and it's such a melting pot. And this happens in a lot of tap rooms. Yeah. The experience it becomes such a melting pot that everyone feels welcome. And there's no pressures to be anything other than just having good beer. Um, so I think it's it's a different experience, and I think it's expanding a category of on-premise sales. You know, I'll, I don't know every restaurant to our bar owner feels that way. I'm sure there is some degree of cannibalization, um, but I would hope that you know, brewers are doing things in a little bit different way that they're not becoming direct competition. We don't have a kitchen. We don't have a kitchen because we don't want to be competition to our accounts in our town. Yeah. And that was very clear from the outset, and they love that idea. So now our staff, Salem's a fairly heavy, heavily um, attended tourist town. Our staff can send, oh, yeah. them, can send them. They come in, they have a couple beers. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, they can have a couple beers, and then they want to go eat and say, we want something on seafood. Say, hey, go across the street. There's two accounts of ours uh, on the wharf. They serve wonderful seafood, right? And so we can be part of that community and part of a, um, uh, adding to it rather than just being competition. But it's delicate. I get it. It's, it's, it's an ongoing conversation right now. And, you know, competition is an interesting word because right now if you are the maker of an IPA, a double IPA, uh, 
regardless of where you are and how long you've been around and how big or small you are, uh, you are fighting everybody right now uh, for tap handles, for shelf space, for uh, the people looking for the next big hoppy thing, exciting hoppy thing. Uh, loggers are taking off uh, slower than some would hope, uh, uh, later than some had imagined, uh, not discounting the early craft uh, entrance into this or the ones who have been doing it on on a larger scale, but we're definitely into a part now where uh, more breweries are making lagers, and they are um, either putting the American twist on them and just over-hopping their IPA recipes with uh, with, with lager yeast uh, or, or, or whatnot, but right now uh, you are one of a, a 6,000 breweries out there, a, a handful that are focusing solely on lagers. Um, and more are probably going to be coming down the down down the road. How do you prepare for that? How do you do, do you think about that? I mean, a little bit. We we're not solely lager, but we're we're heavily mostly mostly yeah. Um, especially the tap room in Salem. Um, so, I mean, how do we prepare for lagers coming down the road from other brewers? Yeah. I mean, I, at some point, as a brewer, you have to stop thinking about your competition. Just think about what you do well and do it. And that's my mindset, and, and, and I try to relieve my anxiety of competition by saying, um, if we're being the best we can be and we're constantly learning how to be better at what we do, that we'll take care of ourselves. Um, and that goes to every facet of our company, not only just brewing, but selling, making sure that um, we take care of our accounts, we take care of our wholesalers, we do it better than other people. So that I, we're too small. I mean, as a 10,000-barrel brewer, uh, you know, we may be 12 to 13 next year. In the grand scheme of things, they're brewers so much larger than us that have so much more weight that can come in and do so many things. I can't, we can't be concerned about that. We just have to do what we do really, really well and make sure we do it the best. Um, are we doing it the best? Not yet. You know, I don't, I don't know who is. Right. But I never, I don't think I ever want to sit here and say we're doing the very best we can because at that point, <laughs> we probably aren't. We're, consider, we're, we're fooling ourselves. Yeah, sitting on your. Back to yeah. what I said at the very beginning. I think any, any brewer that, is honest, knows that they can make their beer better, whether it be shelf stability, um, colloidal stability, or lack thereof. Whatever, whatever the goals are, we're always trying to improve. And as we grow, there's always the challenge of scaling and making sure that in scaling, we're as good as we were when we were small. And that's a big challenge for everyone right now. So we start to wind down here. I'm, I'm curious if there is a lager style that you are particularly excited about, something that might not be on general radars so something that that you're making that you're hoping to make or something that uh five years from now you'd be really excited if you saw more people reaching for it's for me it's i'm wholly blessed right now as a brewer in that i can do anything i want largo wise in my brewery and i think about it every day um, it's taken me a long time to get there, so it's not like I feel like I just woke up and feel blessed. Like I, I feel like somewhat we've earned it, but it's not style. It's more process in that we can do anything from a no decoction to triple decoction uh, brew in a, any given day with any malt that we want um, and then ferment that in any regime that we want and lager it in any, in any schedule that we want to feel those influences. And to me, that makes me the most excited. And, and, Decoction brewing um, has been something that I think is starting to catch on a little bit because people are starting to realize that with some subtle beers and some nuance, 
that decoction prevent creates this malt structure that you can't otherwise achieve. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's been the epiphany at Notch is that we I went all in and got a system specifically designed with a separate decoction vessel so that we could do not just a single decoction, but as many as we want, as many, as many hours there are in the day to, to get to squeeze it in. Um, because I wanted to prove out that that actually was a, um, there was a difference that you could taste and, and smell and, and, and quantify. Um, and thank God I, we got to the point where, yeah, it is. I, I don't think it's a sunk cost fallacy that the oh, decoction is better because we can do it. I think it's actually, it, it, it is a, a noticeable contributor to the overall flavor profile of the beer. And so anything that I can brew, any style, back to your question, any style that we can brew that can benefit from a decoction process or open fermentation that is traditional or horizontal lagering and extended lagering, you know, up to two months, those are things I get excited about because we're improving what, you know, otherwise um, would be good beer, but we can make a great beer by just spending a little more time, utility, labor at it. If you want to taste some of Chris's beers uh, or anything that on, is on tap at any given moment, you should definitely, definitely, definitely go to Notch in Salem, uh, right there on the river. Uh, it is, again, a wonderful, wonderful tap room, uh, great service, a very relaxed atmosphere, unlike, uh, or it, it's so different from so much else that's out there. So I encourage you all to do it. If you live in the Northeast, you can definitely find Chris's beers uh, in package stores uh, and around the area. If you're a beer trader, you should stop out and uh, grab some of those and throw it in along with those Abraxas and everything else that you're uh, mailing around the country. Give people a little taste of, uh, of, of what Chris is doing, a little uh, uh, palate cleanser with, uh, with, some, with some fun nuance. But uh, Chris, thanks so much for sitting down. This, is, this has been a lot of fun talking loggers with you. Thanks so much. We loved it. And if you want to know more about loggers and more about beer in general, you should definitely be checking out our magazine, which you can find more at beerandbrewing.com. If you have questions for me, I'm at John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at beerandbrewing.com, or follow the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Thanks so much for tuning in. Chris, thanks again. And we will be back again next week with an all-new episode. Cheers, guys. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.